0: Welcome to the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing podcast. I'm founder and host, Sarah McGuinness. The Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, or ROE, is a community of wellbeing managers from organisations around the globe. At ROE, we develop you as a wellbeing leader, giving you a powerful support network, professional development, and workplace wellbeing solutions so that you can focus on giving your employees the right support at the right time. To be stronger, better, and faster at improving wellbeing in your workplace, professional development is key these discussions on workplace well-being are designed to inspire share ideas and raise awareness of important issues we can all take action on the interviews are recorded as part of our monthly Wellbeing wednesday webinars in this episode we're joined by mental health advocate jimmy hunt to explore the concept of mental health literacy and why language matters while mental health awareness has improved over the years there is still a gap between knowing about mental health and taking actions towards better mental health. We discuss how to obtain and maintain positive mental wellness, how to understand mental health problems and seek support, and how to decrease stigma in the workplace. Jimmy is the co-founder of the charity Live More Awesome and is most well known for his work in reducing the stigma around mental health in a distinctly colourful way. He's a Guinness World Record holder, two times TEDx speaker, a regular panellist on morning TV and radio, and has been the subject of a documentary and two feature episodes of a major US network show, highlighting his unique and successful exploits into raising awareness of mental health.
1: Uh, Well, I mean, nothing really drives me anymore. Uh, I did have a saviour complex back in the day, when I first started this, I wanted to help everybody and save everybody. And now, um, I don't know really how to put this in a, in a PC kind of way, but it ain't my job. My job isn't isn't to save anyone, isn't to help anybody. I have one simple job and my job is to help myself and to move myself up the mental fitness continuum. And the more that I do that, the more I work on myself, the more I discover Things and then when I discover things, I just think it's a nice thing to do, uh, which is tell tell people what I what I discovered about you know working on myself, and then the only thing I happen to do is I happen to have a reasonably good ability to be able to explain these concepts to people in a way that they go ah oh, yeah okay I get that, which is I kind of call myself a translator. I mean I'm not coming up with the science on this, but I'm definitely translating it in a way that people can understand it a lot better and a lot easier because the science is sometimes quite abstract and convoluted and all over the place. So um that's all I'm all I'm trying to do. My advocacy is is really about just, yeah, I want to help people. That's that's nice and that's good, but my my job first and foremost is to help myself.
0: Hmm. I think I just want to jump to that bit around that translator, because I think that's a really important point in all of this, because you only have to jump on LinkedIn at the moment, especially with the country having gone through lockdown and, and its various levels now, to see there is an absolute overwhelming information. So tell me, how, how do you kind of help people make sense of that and actually make sense of it for themselves?
1: Well, it's about really making sure that it's you boil stuff down to the, the lowest well, the minimum effective dose, basically. There's a I was having a good chat with Richie Hardcore on his podcast the other day about the rise of the mental health influencer. And that's a, you know, that's a whole thing. Back in my day, it was the opposite. Um, I was going to get in trouble for saying this sort of stuff, not actually be rewarded for saying it. And so now on on Instagram and on TikTok and all sorts, you've got you've got all of these people with this overload of uh this is, these are the things you should be doing to to make yourself better. And so that can, that can get overwhelming to a lot of people to be understand the wheat from the chaff and what, what's actually effective and what I should actually be doing. And so a lot of what I do is sort of try and figure out, well, okay, well, you know, all, there's a lot of, there's a lot of nice to haves and things that we can do later on, but what, what things are at our core being that we can work on to get us to a point? Then we're able to choose from all the different things.
0: Mm. And say what you're alluding to when you talk about the mental fitness continuum.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, sort of. Um, so, I guess so. The mental fitness continuum came about six years ago to me in regards to understanding. That in society we've we were we were sort of always given two options. You're either mentally well or you're mentally ill. That was the binary on or off switch. And and you know, I came to understand that when I was mentally ill, I then did enough work to become mentally well and flipped that switch. And then I thought, oh, well, I'm good from here because I'm not mentally ill anymore. And obviously, that sort of dawned on me that, yeah, I, I'd, I'd got myself out of mental illness, but I still wasn't actually mentally well. And that was the understanding that it's not this binary thing. It's a continuum of mental fitness. And the thing about mental fitness is that it worked exactly the same as physical fitness. You put in small amounts of effort consistently over time, you'll get fitter. You'll get all of these benefits off the back of that. And then if you do nothing, and if you sit on the couch in your mind and do nothing, you will slowly fall back into unfitness, and then you will have all of these problems and repercussions because of that. And so in order to uh, move yourself up the continuum, you need to do small incremental things over time, Um, the accumulation of marginal gains, they call it. And so those marginal gains are felt in different ways by different people and so they need to be opting into whatever it is for them and that's sort of you know what I do is i'm I'm looking for these gains just one percent every day but I'm looking for them wherever I can find them and I don't care if they come from science or religion or uh, some I wrote two things down off a comedy TV show that I was watching today and I was like yep yeah, I'm still in those, um, anything that'll give me that, that 1%. And with that attitude of opting into your own fitness, you're able to find the different things that work for you in the different places. You know, like tennis is a, you know, it's a tool that I use. Is it the best tool? Is it the biggest tool? No. Um, but I can tell you it does things that are great for my mental fitness, but I don't necessarily recommend it to you. Maybe yoga's for you, you know, and so there's a whole plethora of different tools that are right for different people, but there are some that are universal as well.
0: And I have to go there. What are some of the universal ones that really stand out for you?
1: Well, I sort of um, I sort of split them into uh, internal and external tools, and the external tools are very good at keeping you in your place on the continuum or slightly moving you up. So tennis, for example, for the last um, for the last couple of weeks, we've been in lockdown, and I haven't been able to play tennis, and so my mental fitness has taken a small hit because of the inability to to play tennis. And so I go play tennis again today. Wonderful. It, it keeps me where I'm at and it gives me a small game. And there are things like, you know, tennis or a lot of a lot of the external things that a lot of people do, but then there's the there's the internal things. And the internal things are the things that can actually drive decent change up the continuum. And the internal things are the things that can uh, change your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Because no matter how many water slides I, I build or lo- uh, rivers I lilo or tennis games I play, It's not really changing my thoughts, my feelings, and my behaviors. And so some of the tools around that are like the ones we know. Meditation is the number one tool for increasing your mental fitness. And it's not just meditation, the practice. It's the the practice of the ability to be able to observe your thoughts, that you learn through meditation. And that practice gives us little tiny pieces of self-awareness each time we do it. And we can find these little things because you cannot change what you're not aware of. And so when these little things come in, you're like, oh, that's a thing. That's a problem. That's something I do. I'm now aware of that. And now I can go and regulate my my thoughts, feelings, and behaviors based on that piece of self-awareness. And so you're like, boom, great. Uh journaling is another good one for that. And a lot of people do you know, just straight up journaling. Uh, I enjoy the practice of automatic writing, which is simply you put your pen to paper and you just write. What do you write about? Doesn't matter. Can be gibberish, it can be stuff, but what happens is when you bypass the conscious mind, suddenly a whole bunch of the subconscious starts coming out onto the paper. And you're just like, whoa, where did all this come from? And then you're able to look at that and go, oh, okay, that's that's a thing that I've now become aware of. It's a it's a pattern of behavior I've now understood. You know, so that's that's another, another really good tool to be able to figure out um, the, your subconscious patterns, your habits and your behaviors that you want to change. And then once you're aware of those, then you can go put things in place to be able to change those. Mm.
0: And what I love about that, that idea, it links really closely back to that fitness idea, doesn't it? That again, you have to keep working on it. And if you keep working on it, then you'll see the benefits what happens when, and we see this, of course, for physical fitness, it's the same for mental fitness. You know, it's like the news resolution. I'm going to make all these changes. I'm going to go to the gym and I go for, you know, six weeks and then I fall off the bandwagon. And the same thing can happen yeah. with, with mental health, you know, things, right? We, we go, well, I'm going to meditate happens. and then fall off.
1: Yeah. It's what... Yeah, it's because we completely overestimate what major things will do to our lives. We completely overestimate what a new job will do, a new partner will do. Um, we completely, well, I mean on that, so for example, lottery winners, and they have done these studies around the world, lottery winners will return to pre-lottery winning happiness levels within six months. So, you know, we think that, When this happens, then I will be good. And we know scientifically for a long time that that is not the truth. And then we completely underestimate what small marginal gains will do over time. And that's why the physical fitness analogy is so very apt, is that basically, you know, we know that. If I said to most of you, I'm sure there's some in here that it won't be the case, but most of you, uh, you need to go run a marathon tomorrow. And most of us would go, oh, no, I can't, I can't do that. And there is, there is nothing in the uh, physical world that can get us unfit people ready to run a marathon tomorrow. If we want to run a marathon, we've got to build consistently over time up to a, to a goal. And we, you know, as a society, we're very good at looking for the quick fix. We want a pill. We want a, a six-week program. We want a thirty-day <laughs> money-back guarantee. We want we want all of these things instead of putting in the consistent effort over time. And one of the things about that is it's because we're not wired that way. We um, we are basically set up. Psychologically, to be looking at um, at the short-term gains instead of the longer-term gains, and it's very hard for us to understand what meditating will do for us in the first week, the first month. But I'll tell you what it'll do over a year, or five years, or ten years, like a lot <laughs> it will change your life but what we tend to do is we tend to go okay right and I'll keep using meditation as an example right i need to meditate what am i going to do okay so i've read the stuff it says you get into theta brain waves uh, but it takes 20 minutes to get into theta brain waves so i'm going to need to meditate for at least 30 minutes and then right so i'm going to do 30 minutes a day and and you go from nothing to trying to do 30 minutes a day and it just fries your brain and you can't do it and you you get oh. It's the same as going into the gym like with my puny little arms and going right. I want to go in and bench press 100 kilograms today. Like it's just just impossible. And so we've got to go in and go right. Well, day one, we're going to practice with the bar, and we're going to learn technique. And we're going to do the bar for a week, and then only after a week we put plates on, very small plates. And because what we've got to be doing is when we're looking at these tools, we've got to look at them as lifetime tools. Just like if we're going to do weightlifting, you should be weightlifting up until you know ninety years old. We know that that is probably the best thing that you can possibly do for your body in order to keep it uh, supple and healthy over time. Same with meditation, we need to be looking at it as a lifetime activity. And in order to make it a lifetime activity, we can't just go crazy off the bat, burn out, and then give it up. And that works with pretty much anything.
0: And that is so powerful, isn't it? And it's also prioritizing. If you just I jump in. Yeah, so coming back to that, yeah, it is absolutely, isn't it? It's one of those things we've got to prioritize. And I think this, this falls quite nicely to this whole idea of mental health literacy and why it's important for us to really understand what mental health is and how we we become knowledgeable and skilled at looking after our mental health. Um, and, and one of the things that stands out to me there is that, you know, as we come into COVID right now, you know, that was like being asked to do a marathon the next day. Yeah. Except this marathon has gone on and on and on. And suddenly it looks like the marathon doesn't have an end point. So yeah. what are you seeing now in terms of how people are coping with, with their mental well-being?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it exposed a lot of people. It exposed a lot of people who were completely unable to cope with it, and the MIQ system at the start was a really interesting one. No one had ever been asked to spend two weeks in a hotel room, like not being allowed outside, and it broke a lot of people. And I've now I've done three of them. Um, I come wow. and go. I come and go a little bit, and you know. To me, technically, MiQ is like lovely. I mean, you you you're overfed. <laughs> you're in a nice hotel. <laughs> People bring you your food every day. You've got unlimited internet. You've got all the time to be able to do whatever you want for yourself. And like, if you can't handle that, then there's that. That's a real nice little sign for you to go. Oh, maybe I'm not where I need to be. And now, don't get me wrong, there was a woman in my first one who was uh, the room above me and she had three kids under four. Now, that's going to test anybody's mental health. That's that's a whole nother level. Um, And there are people, obviously, that have been severely affected in their business and in their livelihoods in regards to this. And that's going to absolutely challenge you more than ever but for the for the general population if this stuff has caused you any discomfort that's a really good thing to be able to look at and be able to go oh okay that's a sign now i'm aware of that what can i work on what can i put in place to be able to improve that in the future like my my analogy for um Because resilience, right? Resilience is a really big thing that we, it's a big thing in the wellness community and all that. And resilience is great. But basically the definition um, on resilience is being able to get through things, be able to um, return back to your original state after an event. And so basically the analogy is to be able to take a punch and get back up again and keep going. And we need to be resilient. 100% resilience is great. Back in the old days, in the one of the first uh, seasons of The Simpsons, Homer Simpson ends up being uh, a boxer. And in this episode, it's it, we find out that he can take a punch like no one else. And so his whole game plan is to take the punches, and then the other person gets tired and he pushes them over and he wins. And ho- so Homer is resilient. He can just keep taking the punches, um, but in the end, he loses the, the World Heavyweight Championships, basically because he couldn't take any more and he just got punched too many times. And then you have the example of someone like Muhammad Ali, and I have a great gif of this that I use in some presentations, which is him dodging 23 punches in nine seconds. That's mental fitness. Mental fitness is the ability to be able to see the stuff coming, to be able to glance Glance it off your shoulders and miss it completely. Like that's that's the idea. The further you move up the continuum, the more time you have. It's like matrix mode where you're just like, oh, I see that. Whereas before, poof, just smacked you in the face. And again, Even Muhammad Ali gets punched in the face and he has to be resilient to be able to keep going through that. But the idea is we want to be able to dodge as many punches as possible. And so the more pre-training work we put in, in order to move ourselves up the continuum, the better we are able to cope with any of that stuff when it comes along.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I think, and that's one of those things, isn't it? When we're talking about that mental health of oh, Comeback and that mental health literacy, it really is around giving people the, the tools and the knowledge. And I love what you're saying about continuing to work on it. But in a workplace, what does that look like when even the work itself is changing all the time? It's almost like, you know, the sand is going through your fingers as you're trying to kind of grapple with what's happening next in this COVID world. What are some of the things that workplaces can be thinking about right now?
1: Well, they can be thinking about their people. First and foremost, now, unless you are, well, I mean, not even unless, basically, we came from the industrial revolution where it was in, inputs to outputs. And if we put in this much of this and we got this much here, then we get X at the end. And then if we can, if we can make the inputs less and more outputs, then we make more money. We've come a lot from there. And we now live in a world where we know that the human resource is the most fundamental resource in our business. Not only can they make us a lot more money, they can cost us a lot more money. And so if you think about the continuum and then you put yourself somewhere on the continuum, let's just say you're at 50 Well, then if you look at the organization as a whole and you put everybody on that continuum and then you get the average, and let's say the average is at 50, well, if the average goes down to 30, that will cost your business millions of dollars in lost productivity, um, in sick days, in theft, in all sorts of things. If you can move your organization from 50 to 70, people are more effective, they're more efficient, they come up with better ideas, they work better in teams, they work better with your customers, they, they think of alternate ways to be able to do things in order to save you money, to be able to pivot, and all that sort of carry on. And so a business needs to be prioritizing the mental fitness of their staff. And we've seen a lot of businesses... You know, do this. We've seen the ability to work from home, um, work less hours, work remotely. Um, we've also seen a lot of um, businesses come in and provide other sort of um, things, even even from getting me in to come and talk to their staff, through through to putting you know any other sort of financial or emotional incentives around around the business. But basically, the more that they prioritise the mental fitness of their staff, the more that they opt in to be a mentally fit company, the more they are able to cope with crisis such as this.
0: And I think therein lies the challenge, doesn't it? Because, uh, you know, talking about that mental fitness is is really critical and and you would see this as probably as much as I do, is you often see organisations that are doing lots of stuff around wellbeing, but actually you end up with these teams or these kind of areas in the organization where it's a lot of doing, but actually the underlying, the way the work is designed, the relationships between managers and staff aren't yeah. ideal. And so that makes it really hard then because, I mean, I don't know if you find this, but I find it sometimes as a presenter, you go and I talk about self-care and I walk out knowing that I've made that much difference in an organization where there are some bigger fish to fry
1: you know no absolutely i mean the the best example of that is the silicon valley in the in the 2000s and that's when sort of workplace culture changed around places like Facebook and Google and Apple and all of that. It's like, come work for us. We've got beanbags. We've got meditation rooms. We've got table tennis tables and free food. And everyone was like, wow, this actually looks like a really good place to work. And you know, Google had a whole wellness program that was lauded around the world. But if you actually listened to the employees if they went and played table tennis at lunchtime their boss would yell over the bannister what are you doing get back to work you know you spend too long in the meditation room you're like you get disciplined for being unproductive and so there's a real disconnect about what we say we do and what we actually do and we see that in so many organizations and you know one of the problems is uh, that you know, organizations inherently by nature are, are top down. And so you've got a lot of people just like you guys. And you, you guys are the people that I deal with in, in my general business with organizations and you're lovely people. You care about all of these other people and you want to do the best you possibly can. And then you put these things in place and you're like, this is what's going to happen. This is how people are going to be better. And then the boss is like, yeah, 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 that's all well and good. We'll sign that off. Okay, cool. But we still need this done by now. We still need this. We still need this. And all of these overarching things, you just get on because of it. And so, unfortunately, it's not really until we get top-down buy-in in organizations that we can see actual systemic change inside of them. And we see this through all sorts of organizations around the world, but we see it through companies in New Zealand as well, like Craig Hudson, for example, uh, the managing director at Xero, lovely man, and he told his mental illness story throughout the company before telling it publicly. And then he put a whole bunch of stuff in place to make sure that him first (laughs) and then everyone under him ended up as healthy as he could possibly make them. The same at Perpetual Guardian, where they moved to a four-day work week. Now, that was, I can't remember the dude's name, but the CEO guy, he was the one that presented that to the board and got it through. And it was the CEO that thought this was a good way to be able to move the business forward. And as usual, the board went, that sounds like we're not going to make as much money and I've got Ferraris to buy. And basically, they went, okay, well, we'll get, um auckland university to study a trial period and at the end of that period they went oh well everybody's happier and we're making more money let's keep going you know okay done but that is a courageous decision by somebody further up the highest up in order to be able to get that as as a result and The cool thing now is we've, not just New Zealand, but around the world, we've already seen these courageous people. We've already had it vetted by universities and we've seen how well it does. And so it should be an easier buy-in for organisations moving forward. And hopefully, and I think we are starting to see more organisations go in this direction. Why? Because it makes you more money.
0: Mm. And it's, as you say, it's, it's almost sad that we have to use the money conversation as the place to go, but for some people that it that will be the game changer. That will be no
1: for all people. For, <laughs> for, for, for all people, for any well, the only the only caveat to that is social enterprise and small business. But any larger company, as soon as it turns private is beholden to its shareholders for a quarterly return. And so no shareholders, no board meeting is going to sign off on a proposal that costs them more money than they make. And so with well-being, we need to be able to prove, and there's there's two studies done, one by... Price Waterhouse Coopers one by KPMG that absolutely show that for every dollar spent on the mental health of your employees to create a mentally healthier workplace the PwC one returns uh, $2.35 for every dollar put in and the KPMG one returns 7 pounds 11 for every pound that they put in and so it's somewhere in the middle there but when it's the two biggest accounting firms in the world saying that then they have to start listening
0: and I think that's a really important point in terms of the you know destigmatization of this. It is actually realizing there are the business benefits. Now, some of you will know that we are currently doing a piece of research on the new wellbeing manager role and trying to understand a bit more about what that role looks like in organizations. And Jimmy, I have to share with you, I've been naughty and I've been digging in already because I can't help myself to see what some people have been writing. And one of the questions is, what is the biggest misconception about your role as a wellbeing manager? And and people have said that it's fluffy, that mental yep. wellbeing is fluffy. And, and what yep. do you say to that? I mean, again, you've got the numbers to back it up, but but are there other?
1: Well, it is fluffy, and this is the, this is the whole thing. It's always been fluffy, and and society says that IQ is solid and EQ is fluffy. That's just that's just the way that it is. And so, with any, um, you know, basically brand realignment, is that we have to tell stories around how that is not the case, and so. You know, the um, Perpetual Guardian story is a great story. Oh, it's fluffy that we care about our people and we want to give them more time off. Oh, cool. Well, here's our financials. Oh, we put a job up recently, uh, a job opportunity. Oh, we got 10,000 applicants for it. Oh, (laughs) like these are stories, you know, like I was talking to a woman the other day who's a bookkeeper and she was asking me for some life advice about this, that, and the other thing. And she's like, oh, I just really want to work for zero. And I'm like, why? She's like, oh, it just it looks like a great place to work. They look like they care about their people. I was like, well, yeah, I, I've been in there. I know I know the people there. Yes, they are. That's, that's wonderful. And so what that does is, you know, Perpetual Guardian, for example, what does a, um, what are they, a trustee's? insurance type place. You know, how many people are going to apply for that average job at, at any one of their competitors? You know, I don't know, 100, get 100 applicants. Wouldn't it be much better to choose from 10,000 and then be able to pick whoever you want? Um, I remember um, my friend Vaughan Ferguson, um, who uh, used to be back in the day, the CEO of or well, the owner of Vend. Um, and he, he was saying, yeah, we actually pay, um, below market rate. And I was like, oh yeah. And he said, yeah, but we've won workplace of the year, the last three years in a row. And so we've got people that want to work for us out the door. And, you know, I mean, he, he wasn't being and try, trying to pay below, below rate or anything, but that's the sort of thing, you know, you want to lower your costs Well, you're, um, you know, your staff costs are a big one. And so he's getting to pay less because people want to work for him. Mm. And so the more stories we can tell about the actual benefits of a mentally fit workforce, then the the more it transitions from being fluffy to being essential.
0: Mm. That's such a good tagline there, you know? Going from fluffy to essential—that—that that in itself, I think, yep. you know, it really speaks to why this mental health literacy is so important right now.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we are in a mental illness epidemic, and it is getting worse. And I could spend the next ten minutes literally rattling off every statistic I know about it, but you guys understand that, like, we're quite at the moment. It's quite quite serious, and and so, uh, well. Recently, the, the English government just made a minister for well-being. Like, it's that, it's that, you know, big of a deal these days. And so I think any organisation that does not have one of you people is, like, neglectful. <laughs> it's, 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 it's almost criminal these days because we know well, I mean, the World Health Organization says that by the year 2025, 80% of the people on the planet will suffer from a mental health condition in their lifetime, eight zero. And so if you th- if you think you have an organization and you're not going to have to deal with four out of five of your staff going through some serious stuff in their life, then you're going to end up in all sorts of trouble, not only sort of legally now, but just and morally but financially.
0: And I, I think you know as you say that 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 really is the the crux of it all it kind of is the center of the argument isn't it you unless we take good notice of this then you know that, that that the ship is sailing and we've really missed this amazing opportunity now to do something the other part i wanted to bring up you know in terms of this mental health literacy part is that we're talking about this workforce now but there's also this generation coming through who are at university right now, for example. They have had to go through COVID and dealing with this, but also they've had greater exposure to mental health literacy opportunities, either because it's on TikTok or because it's you know, in the media more and there's more conversation about it. In terms of those future generations, you know, what do workplaces need to be doing right now to actually be able to you know, adjust and be ready for these people who are going to be much more comfortable about talking about mental health?
1: One, they're more comfortable in talking about it, but two, they're more than we ever were and our parents ever were. Um, being, being a child growing up in this environment is, is very, very, very hard and we don't quite understand it and we don't quite understand them. Now, there's very few people here on this call, I would suggest, that even had cell phones at high school let alone social media. I didn't have social media till I was like 25 or something like that. And basically the way that our society has gone in the last 20 years pretty much the algorithms are set to destroy you. That <laughs> it's and it's simplest form. And so they don't have to and but they have to it's, it's an understanding issue. Like let's just take social media for a quick example. Social media and every sort of study we've ever, that I've ever seen, it's bad. It does bad things to you, but you can absolutely use social media in very good ways. And I think I do. I only follow about 200 people and every one of those person adds beauty and value to my life. I use Reddit, for example, to get a lot of my information. And I subscribe to a lot of particular subreddits so that my feed is filled with stuff that makes me smarter and wiser and and helps me improve my mental fitness rather than takes away from it. And so whilst a lot of things are inherently bad by the way that they are set up, they don't have to be if we can have the understanding of how to use them to our benefit instead of our... Detriment, and so I mean it is literacy, and you know whilst schools, for example, have started talking more about mental health, like I literally do not believe the term mental health or anything in its sphere was used in my entire you know thirteen years of schooling. I, I I don't remember that in any way, shape, or form. And so we are talking about it a lot more in there now, but we're still not talking about it in in a lot of good and constructive ways where we're still very much talking about mental illnesses rather than mental fitness. And, I mean, that's one of my big bugbears, which is, you know, the term mental health is completely lost. Um, When I say Mental Health Awareness Week, the general populace thinks mental illness Awareness Week. And that's really the way it is. We In that week, we talk about mental illnesses. Um, four times in the last year or so, I have heard an anchor on the news, or I've read it in the newspaper, where it said somebody was suffering from mental health. Like, no, that's not the way that works. They may have been suffering from a mental illness, but they were not suffering from mental health. Mental health is not something you suffer from. It is a continuum. And that's what we don't quite understand still. And in order to make this next generation of children and people in the workforce happier and healthier, we have to really start with rebranding the basics. And then it's not about giving people tools. It's about empowering them to go and find their own tools. Because you can, in your businesses, you can do, um, you can bring in yoga teachers, you can have fruit bowls, you can have mindfulness lessons, you can, you can have all sorts of things. But if these people are not opting into them and then using them ongoing, it's a waste of your time and, and theirs. And even if you force them to go to it and listen to it, then the, and they're like, oh yeah, okay. And then they don't actually take it away and use it. Meh, what a waste of time and money. And money. And so the question is, how do we get those people to, you know, understand what they need to be doing? And the understanding that basically they're set up to fail right now in society. And for them not to fail, they have to opt in and be looking for these different solutions. And then when you provide them with some tools, they're like, oh, thank you. That's wonderful. I really, that's an interesting tool. And now I'm using it forever.
0: So funny, as you're, as you're talking, the, the word that I've just written down is self-efficacy. It sounds to me like we're we're trying to build in people is that self-efficacy of going, you have the knowledge and the power and the tools within you. And if you find a motivation that resonates for you around this and those tools that resonate for you and they improve your mental fitness, go for it. You know, yeah. those are the ones that we encourage you to focus
1: on. Yeah, I use the term radical ownership. And that is the understanding that the trauma is not your fault, like we are, we are, society is set up for us to fail. The trauma is probably caused by somebody else, some, something else. The trauma is not your fault, but your healing is your responsibility and nobody else's. Because you're not even likely to get an apology from the person or the thing that caused your trauma, let alone have them heal it for you. Because it's, it's a very harsh uh, and stark comment but it is the reality of it. And so we have to get people to understand that if they would like to move themselves up the mental fitness continuum, and they should, when you explain it to them, yeah, I, w- I obviously want to be at this end and not that end. Well, if that's the case, then you need to do the work. And you know, the analogy is kind of like a, a personal trainer, right? they can give you the exercises. They can show you how to do the exercises Thanks again for listening
0: today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the revolutionaries of wellbeing, head to Wellbeing. that's r-o-w dot and follow the links to sign up. If you're in our community, thanks again. And we look forward to catching up with you really soon.